The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. We're going to look at back in Matthew 24 again today. We're periodically working our way through Matthew 24 and the account of the Olivet Discourse, and we're going to be doing another installment this morning. Now, the majority opinion on the nature of the Second Coming is that it will be a physical, visible, bodily return of the Lord. You agree with that? That's what most people think. Okay, you're going to see it. You're going to see Him in the sky. Every eye is going to see Him. There's no question, I think, that that is the view that is held by the majority of Christians. But here's the question. Is that what the Bible teaches? Well, those people would say yes, because that's why they believe it. They think the Bible teaches that. All right, so I would ask, where does the Bible teach that Yeshua will return to earth in a physical, bodily manner? And some would come back with Acts 111. All right, they'd say that teaches a physical, bodily second coming. Well, let's look at that. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Yeshua, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So they would argue he ascended physically, visibly out of their sight, so won't he return in the exact same way? Well, it says he will return in the same way. So, that's how he's got to return, right? Well, same way is the Greek word hontropon. And by examining the uses of hontropon in the New Testament, it's clear that this phrase doesn't mean in exactly the same way in every detail. But it has the idea of similar in fashion. For example, look at how this phrase is used in Luke 13.34. Oh, Jerusalem... Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen. Now that's the word, hontropon. As a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you are not willing. Now did Yeshua want to gather Jerusalem just like a hen does under his wings? I don't think he has wings. I don't think that's the issue here. The emphasis of Acts 1.11 is that Christ's coming would be A cloud coming. Just as he left in a cloud, so he would come in the clouds. Now we're going to examine the idea of cloud comings a little bit in a little bit detail here, but there's no scripture that exactly teaches that Yeshua would return in a physical, bodily fashion. An understanding of the language of the Tanakh will help us see that his coming is not to be physical. The study of Matthew 24, I think, will really change your eschatological paradigm if you let it. I believe that this is one of the most significant chapters in the Bible on the second coming of the Lord. Understanding this chapter is going to change your view of the nature of the second coming. But you have to keep it in context. You have to use audience relevance. You've got to apply some hermeneutical principles and understand he is talking to his disciples. They ask him a question. He's answering their question It had to have some meaning to them. Now, in verses 23 through 26 of Matthew 24, Yeshua seems to be stressing that he will not be, it will not be a physical body coming. He says, if someone says to you, here's Christ, or there, 
He says, don't believe him. If someone said he's in the desert, he's in a secret chamber, they were not to believe him. Why? If his coming was to be physical and bodily, wouldn't someone be able to say that? He's over there. They were not to believe it because his coming would not be physical, it would not be bodily, yet it would be plainly seen. Now, how would they see his coming? They would see it in the judgment that was to fall on Jerusalem. This is a historical event. AD 70, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. And people say, well, how is that a coming? We'll try to explain that. But they would see his judgment on that coming. We already saw that he said he was, his coming would be like lightning. We saw this in verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, I think that by comparing Scripture with Scripture, we can see that lightning refers to God's judgment. It seems to me that when Yeshua compares His coming to lightning, that He is saying that His coming will be seen in judgment. His coming will be like a bird of prey going after the corpse, verse 28 says. This language is also seen in the judgment language of the Tanakh. His coming would be an earth-shattering event. Look at Matthew 24:29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. We talked about this verse last time. Well, actually, we spent a couple times, a couple lessons on this verse because if you're not familiar with apocalyptic language, you're just not going to get it. Okay, you're just not going to get it. This is the language of the Tanakh that the prophets used. You have, you have to understand that if you're going to understand what Christ is saying here. And people, I say this over and over, but you don't start at the last quarter of a book. Okay, you start at the beginning. The first three quarters of the book is the Tanakh, what people call the Old Testament. You got to understand that before you come to the New, or you'll never get the New because the New uses language from the Old. You've got to put them together. It's one book. And as you go through this apocalyptic language, you see it's not to be taken literally. All right. Now, as a side note, let me just give you another thought on verse 21 where Yeshua said that the Great Tribulation would be such as not has been from the beginning of the world until now and no, never will be. The phrase never will be implies time will go on after the Tribulation. The Great Tribulation is not going to happen at some future day when the world ends. It happened in AD 70 when the Old Covenant age ended and the Jewish Old Covenant system was destroyed. Now, as we can continue our study of Matthew, we come to verses 30 and 31, which go together with 27 through 29. Verses 23 through 26 tell us what the Second Coming won't be like. It won't be a physical bodily return. Then in 27 through 31, he tells us what the Second Coming will be like. We've already seen that it will be manifest in judgment. Look at verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, when is then? He says, then will appear in heaven. Well, then refers to immediately after the tribulation of those days from verse 29. He says, immediately after tribulation, then will appear. Alright? So, after the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, which was a great tribulation, this sign will be seen. What's the sign? Well, pick one. 
Because everybody's got a different idea what this sign will be. As you can imagine, so many guesses as to what the sign was. Some of the church fathers, such as Chrysostom, Augustine, Jerome, Erasmus, believed that the sign would be a cross appearing in the heavens. Does that mean a lot to a lot of people, you think, today? Look at the cross in the sky. What's that? I don't know. Some believed it was the return of the star that marked his birth. Some dispensationalists believe that the sign may involve the heavenly city, New Jerusalem, which will descend at this time and remain a satellite city suspended over the earthly Jerusalem. Wouldn't that be cool? People, if you take the measurements of the New Jerusalem, uh, it would it's way bigger than the earth, okay? So it'd be kind of hard to see this thing floating up over there. But they had all kinds of ideas. Hal Lindsey says this, and MacArthur kind of goes along with this also. Perhaps the sign of the Son of Man will be a gigantic celestial image of Yeshua flashed upon the heavens for all to see. Let me ask you something. What does Yeshua look like? Anybody seen his picture? Well, most pictures you see are, you know, an Italian artist did this, and so he, you know, he's Italian looking, he's got long curly hair and, you know, beard. But, I mean, it depends on where you go. You know, if you go in a black church, you see a black Jesus. You go in a white church, there's a white Jesus. I think they're closer than we are, okay? He, would, he, from, he was from that area, his skin would be much darker than... But, I mean, how do you know? What, would, what benefit would be to see a, a man flashed in the sky and people go, Oh, I know who that is. How would you know? You've never seen him. That's just crazy, you know? He said, this would explain how all men suddenly recognize who he is and see the scars from his piercing at the cross. Oh, look at that guy. I can't see his feet too well, but I think he's got holes in him. I mean, people come up with some crazy ideas. The sign can be whatever your imagination lets it be if you don't keep in mind audience relevance. In other words, who asked what the sign of His coming would be. It was the disciples. In verse 3. Who was Yeshua talking to? The disciples. You're not there. He's not talking to you. Whatever the sign was, it was to appear in AD 70, immediately after the tribulation of those days, which was the destruction of Jerusalem. It was a sign to that generation 2,000 years ago. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. To understand what the sign was, we first need to have a correct translation. You understand this, and I said this many times. You know, if you're just reading from one Bible, you got to move beyond that. You got to get several translations. Young's literal is a must-to-have, so you get the literal translation of what's happening. Some other translations, because translation can really mess something up for you. All right, because they just put a wrong word in, they translate a word wrong, and it'll throw you right off. The NIV really adds to the confusion here. It says this, At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. No, it doesn't say sky. That's not the word. A word-for-word translation from the Greek reads something like this. And then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Now, notice carefully that the location is heaven. It's not the sky. And you've got to get this. It's not the sign that is in heaven. It's the Son of Man who is in heaven. The sign is that the Son of Man is in heaven. So the point is this. (coughs) Excuse me. The destruction of Jerusalem and the Jewish temple 
was the sign that the Son of Man was in heaven. That's the sign. The destruction of Jerusalem. And that was very clear, very apparent. That was the sign. J. Marcellus Kick writes this, A sign was not to appear in the heavens, but the destruction of Jerusalem was to indicate the rule of the Son of Man in heaven. I think he's right. Now, the wording of this passage refers us back to the expression, Son of Man. And that's found in Daniel 7.13, which Yeshua used concerning himself when referring to his coming. He called himself the Son of Man in Matthew 24.27. Now, the judgment of Jerusalem was a sign that the Son of Man was in heaven. That was a fulfillment of Daniel 7.13-14. through Let's look at that. Daniel 7, I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. There's the reference that Christ uses. And He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. Verse 14, And to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all people's nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, anyone, we talked about this last week, anyone who denies the deity of Yeshua or the Trinity is not familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures. Five times in the Tanakh, Yahweh is called the cloud rider. And when the Scripture writers call Yahweh the cloud rider, that's polemic because they're, they're, they're basically poking their finger in the eye of Baal because Baal was known and you got as the cloud rider. He was the God who rides the cloud, and they're saying, No, you guys have got it all messed up. That's Yahweh. Yahweh's the cloud rider, all right? So five times in the Tanakh, Yahweh's called the cloud rider. But in Daniel 7 is an exception. Here the rider on the cloud is the Son of Man. Now, this is a human. And dominion is given to the Son of Man, the second cloud rider. So here we see Yeshua, the Son of Man, coming to the Ancient of Days and receiving His everlasting, king, his everlasting Kingdom. Now keep this in mind, that here the Son of Man is coming on the clouds. Again, we don't think much of that, but to Hebrews, that's a big deal, because that's what Yahweh does. So hang on to that, we'll come back to that in a minute. This prophecy was fulfilled in the ascension of Christ, according to Acts 2, 30-36. Being therefore prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That's what he's talking about, Christ's resurrection. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Yeshua God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, that's what Daniel was talking about, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in my right hands until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him. He's talking about Yeshua, both Lord and Christ, this Yeshua whom you crucified. God has made him Lord. The kingdom received from the ancient of days is no other than the kingdom civilized by Daniel's stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands. In Daniel 2, 34-35, he says, And you looked, a stone, 
cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on the feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Now, see, this is significant because this statue is made up the different kingdoms, and it's in the, the final kingdom, the Roman Empire, that this stone comes. All right, and that's when Christ came. Then the iron and the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floor, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That's the kingdom of God. The kingdom was given to Christ at His ascension, and this was made manifest to all Israel in the destruction of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's destruction was a sign that Yeshua the Christ was in fact the Messiah of God. Look at Matthew 26, 63 and 64. But Yeshua remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yeshua said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Okay, there's that clouds thing again. Okay, now who's coming on the clouds? The Son of Man again is coming on the clouds, just like Daniel talked about. Here Caiaphas, who is the high priest, he asked Yeshua if he's the Son of God, if he's the Messiah. Now notice the similarities between Yeshua's answer to Caiaphas and what he said in the text in Matthew 24. Yeshua told Caiaphas, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. He said to his disciples, they would see the Son of, the, Son of Man was in heaven. He told Caiaphas, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. He told his disciples, they would see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It's obviously the same event in both passages. Now notice Caiaphas' response to Yeshua's statement. Then the high priest tore his robe and said, He has uttered blasphemy! What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What did Yeshua say that was blasphemous? He said he was coming on the cloud. So what did that mean? Okay. You will see the Son of Man coming on the cloud. He has uttered blasphemy. Listen, Caiaphas understood that Yeshua was claiming to be the Messiah In order to understand what Yeshua is saying, we need to understand the idea here behind cloud comings. Very important, okay, for us to understand that. But that's what he's telling them. He says, you'll see the Son of Man, just like Daniel talked about, coming on the clouds. Well, only Yahweh rides the clouds, so he's saying he's God. That's blasphemy. This is what most Christians expect when they think about clouds, okay? They see a man surfing a cloud, you know, if there was any substance to that man, he would fall right through that cloud. You do get that, right? Okay, that, that's, you know, that's the version we think of, coming on the clouds. God's coming on the clouds of heaven is a symbolic way of speaking, listen, of His presence. When He talks about cloud coming, He's talking about His presence. He's talking about His judgment, and He's talking about His salvation. All through the Tanakh, God was coming on clouds in salvation of His people, in judgment of His enemies, Coming on the clouds, first of all, indicates his presence. So let's look at a few scriptures that deal with that. All right, Exodus 16 10. I mean, yeah, Exodus 16 10. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of Yahweh appeared in a cloud. So there's the presence of God, it's in the cloud. Exodus 19 9. And Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you 
in a thick cloud. Again, the presence is seen in the cloud. Exodus 34.5, Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood there. Again, presence. Leviticus 16.2, Yahweh said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is in the ark, so that he may not die, for I will appear in the cloud. God's gonna, that's His presence in the cloud over the mercy seat. Numbers 11.25 Then Yahweh came down in the cloud and spoke to him. Again, presence. So the coming of the clouds gives us indication that's God's presence. Cloud coming. God is there. You don't see Him. He's not floating on a cloud. But the cloud symbolizes His presence. It also indicates His salvation. Like in Psalm 18, David speaks of his deliverance from Saul. And David uses apocalyptic language, but he's talking about God delivering him, and that's salvation, being delivered from Saul. He says, He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. So he says, God delivered me in his cloud coming. One of the issues that I think is really important that we need to understand is Yahweh coming on the clouds is often a reference to judgment. All right? The idea coming on the clouds is associated with the judgment of his enemies. And Jerusalem was his enemy when he came against it, okay? So, I mean, Isaiah 19.1, this is a verse you need to know and understand, so when you're talking to somebody and they're talking about, you know, Christ, well, where is He if He's here? Well, He came in judgment. Show them this Scripture, all right? I think this is very clear. An oracle concerning Egypt. Now, oracle here is the Hebrew word Massah. It means an utterance chiefly of doom. In other words, this is a pronouncement of doom against Egypt. Behold, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud. He comes to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at His presence. The heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Now we know from chapter 20, and I'd encourage you to read chapter 20, that God used the Assyrians as the instruments of His wrath on Egypt. Okay, so it was, God didn't, they, no one saw God, but they did see the Assyrians come in and wipe them out. But yet it says this, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud, Egypt will tremble at His presence. God came to Egypt, but nobody saw Him. His coming was in judgment. What they saw was the Assyrians, and the Assyrians wiped them out. God's presence was made known in judgment. But it was the Assyrians who were literally present. Just like in AD 70, Christ came against Jerusalem in judgment, but what the Jews saw was the Romans destroying their city. Now, similar language is used of Nineveh's fall. In Nahum 1.3, it says, Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power. And Yahweh will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. So He's coming on these clouds, and uh, verse 5-6 through six says, The mountains quake before Him, the hills melt. Again, people, apocalyptic. Don't picture some mountain melting. Okay? 
The earth heaves before Him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by Him. Now we know that Nineveh was destroyed not by a literal coming of God out of heaven on the clouds, but by the invading army of the Chaldeans and the Medes in 612 B.C. But God said, this is my work. This is my presence. This is my judgment. So when Yeshua said He would come in the clouds, He was using apocalyptic language of the prophets to identify Himself as the Messiah, the Judge. Caiaphas reacted the way he did because he knew that only God rode clouds. He knew this was a claim to deity. He knew that Yeshua was claiming to be the Messiah of Daniel 7. Notice what Yeshua says to Caiaphas in Mark 14.62. Yeshua said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Now here it says, He's coming with the clouds while he's seated at the right hand of power. Now, this is literal and bodily. How do you get both at the same time? (laughs) Yeah, he's seated and he's coming. This is apocalyptic language. And listen, his coming with power is proof that he is sitting at the seat of power. John Lightfoot says this, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man. Then shall the Son of Man give a proof of Himself who they would not before acknowledge. A proof indeed, not in any visible figure, but in vengeance and judgment so visible that all the tribes of the earth will be forced to acknowledge Him, the Avenger. The Jew would not know Him. Now they shall know Him, whether they will or no. Many times they asked of Him a sign. Now a sign shall appear that He is the true Messiah, whom they despised, derided, and crucified, namely, His signal vengeance and fury, such as never any nation felt from the first foundations of the world. Our text says that at the time of His coming, the tribes of the earth will mourn. Now, the word tribes here is a reference to Israel. Gentiles are not referred to as tribes in the Bible. There were tribes in Israel at this time But since the destruction in AD 70, there are no tribes in Israel. The genealogical records were wiped out. No one knows what tribe they're from. Judaism ended in AD 70. This reminds us of Revelation 1-7. Behold, He is coming with the clouds. There He is again on those clouds. And every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. So all the tribes are going to wail. John said in this chapter, Yeshua is coming soon, He's coming quickly, and that the Jews, those who pierced Him, okay, that was the Jews of the first century, they're the ones who did the piercing, even those who pierced Him are going to see Him, all the tribes are going to wail at His coming. We need to see that this is not a physical, bodily coming of Christ, it's a coming in judgment. And the idea of seeing here is not physically seeing, but to recognize, to be aware, to perceive. The destruction of Jerusalem would cause the tribes of Israel to recognize that Yeshua was indeed the Son of Man, the Messiah, and they would wail over this destruction. Now Thomas Newton, in 1754, just in case you think I invented preterism, said this, 
Our Savior proceedeth in the same figurative style, verse 30, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The plain meaning of it is that the destruction of Jerusalem will be such a remarkable instance of divine vengeance, such a signal manifestation of Christ's power and glory, that all the Jewish tribes shall mourn, and many will be led from thence to acknowledge Christ and the Christian religion. In the ancient prophets, God is frequently described as coming in the clouds upon any remarkable interposition and manifestation of His power. The same description is here applied to Christ. The destruction of Jerusalem will be as ample a manifestation of Christ's power and glory as if He was Himself to come visibly in the clouds of heaven. John Gill, writing in 1809, said this, He shall appear, not in person. You know, when you tell people, I believe Christ came in 87, where is He? I want to talk to Him. Well, no. You don't understand His coming, okay? Not in person, but in power of His wrath and vengeance on the Jewish nation, which will be a full sign and end proof of His being come. All right? He says, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The prophetic language of the Tanakh clearly shows that the Lord coming in the cloud is speaking of judgment. And that's exactly what it means in the New Testament when it speaks of Christ coming on the clouds. People saw the judgment, but it was not a visible appearance of a man in person. He predicted both the destruction of Jerusalem and his parousia in the same context. But that's what it was. It was a coming in judgment. Now, since Jerusalem was destroyed, just as he said it would be, why would it be hard to believe that he came, just as he said he would? The destruction of Jerusalem was a substantial, a manifestation of Christ's power and glory, as if he came visibly in the clouds of heaven. The same sort of metaphor is carried on in the next verse. He says, And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, we have to ask, does the Lord all of a sudden drop the apocalyptic language and begin to speak literally? I don't think so. I mean, that doesn't seem to fit the context here. This is also apocalyptic. And the most important thing that I want you to see here is that whatever this means, whatever it is talking about, happened 2,000 years ago. Okay? People, this is the most important thing. I think this is the foundation of preterism is the time statements. Because either preterism is right or Yeshua is a false prophet. Because he predicted his coming soon, quickly, shortly, that generation. So if he made a mistake, then he's not Lord. That's how important this is. Okay? Look what he says in 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What generation? Wait, wait, let's back up. He sa- I say to you. Talking to you, Gary? Yeah. I say to you, Gary. Gary wasn't there when, when the Lord was talking, okay? He was not there. I say to you, the disciples, go back to verse... Don't forget where we are. The disciples are asking him a question. He's sitting down answering their question. I say to you, this generation... Now, this gets complicated here. <laughs> I don't know why, because it's not complicated. This generation... That is the near demonstrative. If I were to say to you, this building is going to be destroyed in a month, you'd say, what building? 
Would you say that? When anybody asks me what building? This building. The near demonstrative. But if I said to you, that building will be... Then you'd go, that building? What, you, what building are you talking about? I need a context here. He's telling the disciples, this generation, the one I'm talking to, the one you're living in, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Until all the... What, what are the all things? Well, that's the gathering together of the elect. That's one of the things he talked about previously. He says, until all these... Everything I've been talking to you about will all take place. All the things... As part of it, they're going to be gathered together to the elect. So with that in mind, whatever it's talking about, happened in 87. But let's see if we can figure out what he's talking about. We need to get an understanding of the use of the trumpet. Okay, he's talking about a trumpet's going to blow here. A loud trumpet's going to call and it's going to gather the elect. The trumpet was used to call the people of Israel together. Back in Numbers 10. Make two silver trumpets of hammered work. You shall make them. You shall use them for summoning the congregation and for breaking camp. So make the trumpets. Trumpet was blown. Gather the congregation together. The trumpet was to be blown on the Day of Atonement in the Jubilee year to signal the release of slaves and debt. Now, some say that AD 70 was a Jubilee year. I tend to believe that, but you cannot prove it. Okay? You just can't prove it. Because... The records, the, the calendar, the, the Hebrew calendar is different than ours. And every, every year they throw in a couple more days here and there because they had 30 days. It was a lunar cycle. So it's, listen, I think it's impossible to prove. But if you can prove it, if anybody can prove it, I'd love to see it. But I believe it was a jubilee year because the captives were set free. No doubt about that. All right? You just can't prove it. All right. Leviticus 25.9. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the Day of Atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. Now, we get some background on the trumpet and the gathering from Isaiah. So this is the trumpet sounding on the Day of Atonement. Day of Atonement, very significant day, people. Sins are being forgiven, being atoned for. Let's go back to Isaiah 27. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, Yahweh will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one. O people of Israel, in that day a great trumpet will be blown. And those who are lost in the land of Assyria and those who are driven out of the land of Egypt will come and worship Yahweh in the holy mountain of Jerusalem. What's the mountain? That's God's dwelling place. Okay, these, these people were dispersed okay, because of their sin to all these different lands. They were out of the Egypt. They were out of the land. The trumpet's going to be blown, and they're going to be brought back together. And Isaiah says, when the trumpet of God sounds, the outcasts of Israel are going to be gathered. This is a reiteration of an earlier messianic promise of the gathering of the remnant that we see in Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Who's that? Who's the shoot from the stump of Jesse? That's Yeshua. That's Yeshua the Messiah. Okay, A branch from its roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, nor decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, 
and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. Now, you get that that's Messiah? In that day, Yahweh will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. This is significant, people. What was the first time? That's referring to the exodus out of Egypt. So he is telling us there's going to be another exodus. This is a spiritual exodus from sin and death into the promised land. He's going to regain, he's going to recall his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathos, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So he's going to gather all the Israelites, all the believing Israelites. Here we see the idea of gathering from the four corners of the earth. So it was a time to come when God would gather all his people. All right, now, I know people that use the verses like this to say the earth is square. Okay, four corners. People, that's talking about the points of the compass. All right, this has nothing to do with square. John Gill said this, The Jews say that in the after-redemption by Messiah, all Israel shall be gathered together by the sound of the trumpet from the four parts of the world. Zohar in Leviticus 47.1. All right, so Yeshua's disciples, they're familiar with the Tanakh, right? These guys are Hebrews. They know their Bible. It's not a question, I'm telling you. They know their Bible, okay? Jewish boys, by the time they were 12, had the whole Tanakh memorized. Or the first five, first five of the Torah. They had the Torah memorized, okay? First five books. Every Jewish boy, that's what they did. They didn't study them. They didn't go, they just memorized it. When they turned 12, then they started teaching them what it meant, okay? But can you imagine that? And I don't mean you know, they had to start at a certain point to get it. You could ask them, you know, hey, where's the Bible talk about birds? And, and they, well, here, 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 here. I mean, they knew it. So they knew the, we have to understand that. Yeshua's disciples knew the Bible. They weren't like American Christians, okay, who'd never even read it. They knew it. They committed it. I mean, to them it was everything. You know why it was so important to them? They thought it was the Word of God. Get that kind of dig in there? Got it? Okay. <laughs> They'd be familiar with it now, so they no doubt will remember Isaiah's promise when they heard Yeshua talk about sounding the trumpet. They say, hey, wait a minute. This is what Isaiah talked about. We get a little more insight on the trumpet and gathering from other passages where the same language is used. For example, 1 Corinthians. This is probably more familiar to some of you. 15, 51-52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Okay. Not talking about nap time here. Okay. Sleep is a euphemism for death. We're not all going to die, he's saying. But we shall all be changed in the moment. In the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet. Okay, there it goes. We're going to hear the trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Now notice what happens here. The trumpet sounds and the dead are raised. This is a reference to the dead in Christ. This is a reference, you go back to Isaiah, of him gathering the remnant together. The dead are raised, they're brought into the presence of God, and the living are changed. What changes about the living? They put on immortality. Okay? They are now immortal. Is this a different trumpet than the one in Isaiah spoke of? I don't think so, no. 
The trumpet was sounded to gather God's people. This is a spiritual gathering into the presence of God. This is the resurrection. This is the same idea found in Matthew 21.31. The trumpet is sounded, the elect are gathered or resurrected. Now Daniel connects the resurrection and the destruction of Jerusalem. Let's go back to Daniel 12, 1 and 2. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charged your people. Michael was a guardian god over the nation Israel. And there shall be a time of trouble such as there has never been. What's that talking about? A time of trouble. That sounds like Matthew 24, a great tribulation, right? There shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people, that's Israel, shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now they're going to arise. Just in case you missed it, he further clarifies that this time is going to happen at Jerusalem's destruction. Here's the resurrection. When does it happen? Drop down to verse 7. And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for time, times, and a half time. How long is that? Three and a half years. What is three and a half years? That's the great tribulation. How many of you heard people say the tribulation is seven year tribulation? You ever heard that? Where's that in the Bible? It's not in there. Okay? There's nothing in there about seven year tribulation. Okay? Dispensational and just came up with that, all right? The tribulation is three and a half years. And guess what? Just to, as a coincidence, when Rome came against Jerusalem, guess how long the war was? Three and a half. Good guess. I mean, that's just a coincidence, right? The prophets prophesied it. It happened just like it said, all right? And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things will be finished. The shattering of the power of the holy people. Who are the holy people? Jews. It's the Jews. Daniel is told that the resurrection will take place when the holy people, the Jews, have been completely shattered. That's A.D. 70. It's done. It's shut down. We also see the same idea of the trumpet and gathering in 1 Thessalonians. Very famous rapture passage, right? For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, that we who are alive and are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Alright, so here's this trumpet being sounded. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together to meet them in the clouds, in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore encourage one another with these words. Now, notice that Paul does not say this. He doesn't say those who are alive when Christ comes. He says, we who are alive. Thinking, he and the people he's talking to were going to be alive when Christ came. But again, we see the same idea. The trumpet sounds, the elect are gathered. The Lord himself will descend from heaven. The word descend was commonly used of the priest descent out of the temple to announce that atonement had been complete. Now the idea of caught up together to meet caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 
This could be referring to the idea we looked at earlier, the cloud representing God's presence. They're brought into the presence of God. This is a picture of God's elect being brought into His presence, into the Holy of Holies, into God's dwelling. Now, is Paul talking about a literal rapture here? I don't think so. The parallel text in Luke helps us to see that this gathering is a time of redemption. Now that's very important. Let's go to Luke 21, 27, 28. And then you will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, again, this is coming in judgment on Jerusalem. When you see this thing taking place, he says, straighten up, raise your heads. Why? Because your redemption is drawing near. The word redemption here, apolutrosis, is, the, is salvation, the act of redeeming. The New Testament believers were saved by the blood of Christ, it teaches us in Ephesians 1.7. In Him we have redemption through His blood. Forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. All right, The payment had been made at Calvary. We all know that. Christ died at Calvary. He died for their sin. But listen, this is what most people don't get. Until the high priest returned, on the Day of Atonement, out of the temple, the redemption was not complete. This is why it's so important to understand the transition period from AD, from Pentecost to AD 70. The church was transitioning. The church had come into being. It was growing. The old covenant was fading away. Because look what he says in Ephesians 4.30. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now wait a minute. They were sealed for a future day of redemption. But in verse 1, it says we have been redeemed. So which is it? This is what theologians call the already but not yet. They had it already, but not fully yet, because until AD 70, they didn't get it. They were sealed and they were awaiting. The Holy Spirit is called an engagement ring because He gave that first century church the Holy Spirit as a promise that I'm going to redeem you in the future. They were sealed. They were waiting for it. Which happened at the second coming when the Lord gathered the elect into His presence. When Israel gathered each year on the Passover, the culmination event was the Day of Atonement. The high priest entered the Holy Temple. He went into the Holy Holies. He only went in once a year. And he went in to offer the atoning sacrifice on behalf of the people. While the priest was in the Holy Holies, the people anxiously waited his return. What did that priest have on him when he went in there? What was on his robe? Bells. Why? So they could hear, is he still alive in there? Because if he messed up, God would kill him. Okay, so they hear the bells. Okay, he's still going on in there. You know, there's tradition that says they tied a rope to his ankle. There's nothing biblical you'll ever find about that, but the tradition says they tied a rope, which made sense, because if he died, if God killed him, how do you get him out of there? You just pull the rope, pull him on out, because who's going in there? I'm not going in there. You going in there? You going to go in and get the guy out? No. Okay, so <laughs> whether that's true or not. All right, he went in once, once a year on the Day of Atonement. The high priest would enter to make the sacrifice. And the people waited for his return. No return, no atonement. Now, the new covenant parallel of this is Yeshua. Yeshua is our atoning sacrifice. He's our high priest. The generation to whom Yeshua spoke was the congregation waiting for His return. No return, no redemption. Look at Hebrews 9.24-28. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God 
on our behalf. Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not His own. The high priest had to do this over and over and over every year. Christ did it one time. For then He would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. That's important. When did Christ appear? At the end of the ages. To put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And just as it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin. When Christ came the first time, He dealt with sin. He went to the cross, He paid for sin, but He's going to appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but watch, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. And people think, well, that's what He came for the first time, to save us. He came to pay the price. But redemption does not come until AD 70. Yeshua ascended out of the Holy of Holies, signifying that salvation was complete and bringing us into the presence of God. This could not be accomplished until the earthly temple was destroyed. So in their day, as long as that temple was standing, they weren't right with God in a complete sense. <coughs> Look at Hebrews 9.8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. Now, this might be better translated while the first tabernacle still has any standing. In other words, while the Old Covenant was still in force, and that temple was the symbol of it, as long as the Old Covenant was still in effect, men did not have access into the presence of God. They couldn't go in that Holy of Holies. But watch, he says here, the way into the holy place is not open. They can't go in there. They can't get in the holy place. Only the high priest could go in, only once a year, as long as it was stood. So prior to Yeshua's second coming, at which He destroyed the temple in the Old Covenant, no one went to heaven. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple was a sign of His coming in power. And Matthew 24 makes it clear that the great gathering of God's people took place at, at the earthly temple as it was destroyed. Now man has access to the presence of God. No longer would the dead be confined to a waiting place called Hades. No longer would sin separate the believers from God. This is what the resurrection was all about. The dead in Christ, who had died throughout the ages, were brought into the presence of God at that time. Before that, they, they were not. Those alive at that time were given immortality. This all happened in AD 70. Believers today don't need a resurrection. Why? Because Yeshua said, whoever lives and believes in Me will never die. You've already been resurrected. When you trusted Christ, you were given life and you trusted Christ. That's a resurrection. God gave you life. We have immortality. And when we physically die, we just leave this realm and go into the presence of God. The divine realm. And Paul says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. They waited the resurrection. They waited to be able to come into the presence of God. We don't wait on anything, believers. We have it. We have immortality now. We dwell in the presence of God in the sense there's no separation between man and God now because... We are right with Christ. And being right with Christ, we're right with God. We're in His presence. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the truth of Your Word. Lord, I thank You that 
unlike the First Testament saints, we're not waiting on anything. We've been given the fullness of redemption through Your blood. Thank You, Lord. Thank You for the access we have to You 24-7. Thank You for the joy of living and walking in Your presence. Strengthen us, Lord. May we honor You by the way we live day to day. May the life we live show the world around us our love for You, Lord. Thank You for Your grace to us. Amen. Anthony. Questions out to my understanding. So no one really, whoever died before they, no one really was made into heaven until that particular thing happened. Okay, correct. Okay, okay. men who died during the old covenant went to the grave, went to Sheol, whatever you want to call it. Okay, they didn't go to heaven. They awaited. They awaited the resurrection of the dead because until Christ opened up heaven, once He at this coming. That was the resurrection. The, the resurrection was God taking all those believers who were waiting for this time into the presence of God. The living put on immortality. In other words, those who trusted Christ now have new life. Okay, And guess what? They go into God's presence when they physically die. But those who are already physically dead were taken to heaven. That was the resurrection of the dead. We don't see death. We're, we are in the new covenant. That's what when it says there is no death, doesn't mean you don't physically die. See, that's physical death is a small, small thing, people. All right, not a big deal at all. Okay, actually, for a believer, it's just a graduation day. Okay, you go into the presence of God. All right. Okay. Um, Gary Cole says, Daniel 2.44 says that the kingdom that will never be destroyed will be established during the times of those kings. Those kings are gone, so the kingdom that will never be destroyed is active right now. The kingdom of Yahweh is among us right now. Correct. I don't see a question, but yes, (laughs) your statement is correct. Yes, we are in the kingdom of God. We're not waiting for something. We dwell in that kingdom. His kingdom came and it came Okay, in, when Christ showed up, He began the kingdom. kingdom started growing. Old covenant was fading away. At 8070, the old covenant is done, gone. Temple's gone. No more Jews. The only way a person is right with God is they believe in Christ. Whether you're Jew, whether you're Gentile, there is no difference. Once Christ showed up, those Jews who rejected Him, He said, Revelation 2.9, You are of the synagogue of Satan. Those who say they are Jews, but they're not. Who would say they're a Jew? A Jew. Why were they not? Because they're not a true Jew, because Christ was the true Jew. He's the true Israel. And only as we are in Him are we right with God. Anybody else? Gary. Well, you asked earlier if I was there. So I'm old, but I'm not that old. And, uh, but the, oftentimes it says Christ is sitting at the right hand of power. And why was he not? I mean, is that the Trinity? The Father's on the throne, and he's at the right hand of the throne? Yeah, that's a position of authority, okay? And again, we're, we're talking in human terms here about God, okay? So it might be a little bit difficult to understand. I got a question. Why do you think dispensationalists cling so tightly to futurism 
in light of biblical evidence? Well, they don't see the evidence. They just don't see it. You know, I mean, and there are some people, I guess there's all kinds of reasons, you know, but I'll tell you this, people. It's like anything else. Unless God opens your eyes, you don't see it. Okay? And so they read the same Bible we read, but and that's why I stress so hard the time statements. You've got to focus on those time statements because that's didactic. That's not apocalyptic. It's didactic literature. He's telling about a time, and we understand time, and it doesn't shouldn't get confused because he uses every time indicator he can. Soon, quickly, shortly, some of you standing there, this generation. You know, we want, I want to make it clear to you people, I'm coming in your lifetime. That's what he's trying to say, all right? And so if you miss that, but... I think the dispensationalism missed his coming, second coming, the same reason the Pharisees missed the first coming. What was that? They wanted, the Pharisees wanted, a, and the Jews wanted a physical deliverer to set them free from Roman bondage. They wanted a, a powerful comer, set us free from Rome. And so when Christ came, they're like, no, that's not what we want. We want to be free from Rome. Okay. And so the same thing in the church. Christ, he spiritually came? Nah, we don't want that. We want a physical place to live. You know, with Listen, the physical is for now. Okay? 1 Corinthians says the physical comes first and then the spiritual. And then we go into the presence of God. I promise you, the spiritual is going to be much better. Okay? <laughs> much better. All right? Amen. Jeff? This is not so much this is all... But as you already know, 30 years of your material in the school overseas. Okay. He's wanting specifically to know if he can use your material on his YouTube channel where he teaches in their own language. That's what I don't think you care. Ferdy, you can use, and this is, this does go just for Ferdy. This goes for anybody. You can take anything we do here and use it however you want. Mm -hmm. Okay? (laughs) I mean, really, that's what it's for. That's what we put it online for. That's what we have the notes online, the videos. Use it however you will, okay? Because there's no copyright. We don't try to say that's ours, you know. There's a website that Jeff found. It's got all my messages on it. The only thing they did was remove my name. You know what? I don't even care because the word's getting out. It's, I'm not, I don't get uh, commission, you know. Hey, wait a minute, I get a commission on that. No. Listen, we're really trying to just get the word out. So however it gets out, it gets out. You know, you could put your own name on it if you want. I don't care. It doesn't affect me. Okay. <laughs> yes, Ferdy, please use whatever. Ferdy is a pastor in the Philippines. Uh, they have a church over there. They've been here before. And I think they're, they're spo- they were supposed to be coming this year again, but I think COVID kind of messed it up. But they have a school over there, and their students have to go through a class on eschatology that I teach via video in order to graduate the school. So, very interesting, okay? <laughs> All right, anybody else? Yes. <laughs>